Those of you who were under the impression that you were just coming for breakfast, surprise, and I'm sorry, but hopefully this will uh, profit you, uh, as the, Lord, the Lord's Word always does. So, small disclaimer, feel free to get up and get more food while I'm speaking, that won't throw me off, I don't think, if it does, that's fine. This is breakfast, men's breakfast, so... Uh, at any time, more coffee, juice. Um, I do also, again, want to uh, publicly thank the guys who made this breakfast. That was delicious. Thank you, Rusty and Mike and others. Really good. So, uh, the portion of God's Word that we'll be in today is Jeremiah chapter 45. Jeremiah chapter 45. And before we get into that, let's pray. God, we are thankful that you have spoken, that you have not left us alone. You have not left us groping in the dark to try and figure out who you are and even who we are and how we can be reconciled to you. God, I thank you for revealing yourself. I thank you also for sending us the Holy Spirit uh, by which we are made not only to understand your word, but also to delight in it. God, I pray that you would help us to do both this morning. I pray you'd give us understanding, and I pray you would help us to love the truth. I pray you'd help us to uh, turn from sin God, I pray that you would search our hearts and that you would show us where there's grievous way in us. God, I pray that you would uh, give us grace to, um, to turn our eyes to your greatness and to, in light of that, appreciate our smallness. Uh, so we thank you again for this time uh, around your word together ask that you would bless it and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 45. So this text, it is off the beaten trail a little bit. As someone said to me, well, that's in left field. But it is left field of the Bible, which means um, this is profitable for us. And God breathed. And part of what is able to equip us for every good work. Um, We're going to learn in this chapter from the experience of a man named Baruch. Baruch. And uh, if you're still turning there, while you find your way to that chapter, I'll tell you, as I've told you before, I've loved the last couple of months serving with you, uh, how ministry-minded a lot of you are, most of you are that I've met, how you desire to serve the Lord in his church, uh, and more than just desire it, you're doing it. And I really have appreciated that. And the main application of this text actually is aimed at guys just like that, those who are serving the Lord and his people. And the main application uh, is not going to be something along the lines of, you're serving the Lord you're doing great. Although that wouldn't be wrong. That wouldn't be bad. 
There's a place for that. Uh, Likewise, the main application today will not be you're serving the Lord now, abound all the more, increase. That wouldn't be bad, that wouldn't be wrong. That's not what this text says to us. The main application of this text is you are serving the Lord, now be careful how you do that. A quick refresher, just in case the context of Jeremiah is not fresh on your mind. Um, Jeremiah was a prophet that the Lord raised up to speak to Judah, which is the southern kingdom of Israel. Remember, God plants his people in the land, and they divide a northern kingdom that becomes known as Israel and a southern kingdom that becomes known as Judah. Um, And Jeremiah was raised up to speak prophetically the word of the Lord against Judah. I say against because most of what he said was judgment is coming. Specifically, God is going to use Babylon to come and invade Judah and especially her capital, Jerusalem, and carry God's people out of the land to exile them, to destroy the temple. So, The Lord says more than this through Jeremiah, but the main thing he says through Jeremiah is judgment is coming. Verse 1 of this text orients us to specifically what will be in this chapter. This is a heading of sorts or a title for the discourse that follows. So look at verse 1 with me. The word that Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch, the son of Neriah. Now, the first question that demands answering is, who is Baruch? Somewhat anonymous in salvation history. Uh, In short, he's Jeremiah's scribe or his uh, secretary, his personal assistant, his partner in ministry, close companion. We don't have a lot of information about him. We know he's from a noble family. In Jeremiah 32, it tells us that he's the grandson of a man who we know was actually the governor in Jerusalem uh, during a previous king's reign. And in chapter 51, we learn that his brother, Sariah, was actually on staff in the court of King Zedekiah, a later king after uh, the one that we're going to read about. Uh, or, or the rain that we're going to read about that, that chapter 45 happened in. So Baruch's immediate relatives had some serious social clout. Presumably, Baruch had the opportunity to live a very privileged, comfortable life, but he didn't pursue that. He counted faithfulness to God better than worldly advantage and attached himself to Jeremiah whose life was, was really hard. Uh, you've probably heard it said, Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. Right? Well, that, while that doesn't uh, come from the Bible, that's pretty appropriate. There's some really hard things that happen to Jeremiah. And Baruch attaches himself to this weeping prophet, uh, forsaking, presumably, um, the privileged life he could have had. So, so Baruch is, although he is rebuked in this chapter... Uh, it's important to note that, that he is a respectable man of faith, a true servant of God, as I trust 
Most of you are. So what's the occasion for this divine message to Baruch? This word of admonition. Look at the rest of verse 1 with me. This is the word Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch, the son of Neriah. When he, that is Baruch, when Baruch wrote these words in a book at the dictation of Jeremiah or from the mouth of Jeremiah. When did this happen? In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. So in this year, um, Jeremiah speaks words from the Lord. Baruch takes dictation, writing it down on a scroll. And that's when the Lord actually brings this word for Baruch as well. Um, This incident where Jeremiah speaks these words in the fourth year of King Jehoiakim's reign, Baruch writes it down. That's actually detailed in chapter 36, if you want to turn to the left in your Bible a few pages. It'll help us to get more of the full story so we can understand what's happening when the Lord spoke this word to Baruch. Jeremiah 36 And I'll start reading in verse 1. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, there's the same year, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you from the days of Josiah until now. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them, so that everyone may turn from his evil way, and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. So how is Jeremiah going to carry out this plan? It involves Baruch. Look at verse 4. Then Jeremiah called Baruch, son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll, At the dictation of Jeremiah, all the words of the Lord that he had spoken to him. And Jeremiah ordered Baruch, saying, I am banned from going to the house of the Lord. So the religious, political leaders of Jerusalem had put a restraining order, essentially, on Jeremiah. And said, you can't come to the temple anymore. We're tired of what you have to say, this word of judgment. You can't come. So Jeremiah says, Baruch, you're going to go. Verse 6, so you, Baruch, are to go. And on a day of fasting in the hearing of all the people in the Lord's house, you shall read the words of the Lord from the scroll that you have written at my dictation. You shall read them also in the hearing of all the men of Judah who come out of their cities. It may be that their plea for mercy will come before the Lord, and that everyone will turn from his evil way. For great is the anger and wrath that the Lord has pronounced against this people. So we find out uh, in verses 8 and 9, which I didn't read, that actually the next year, Baruch does it. He takes this scroll that he uh, wrote at the dictation of Jeremiah. And as an interesting side note, Most scholars believe that the majority of the first part of the book of Jeremiah 
is, is this scroll that Baruch wrote out at the dictation of Jeremiah, uh, according to the Lord's directive. But a year before Baruch actually goes and does this, in the year when he was just taking dictation, that's the context for what the Lord is going to say to Baruch in chapter 45. So, uh, imagine this, right? The Lord told Jeremiah, uh, write down all the words that I spoke against Israel and Judah. And so, Baruch is taking dictation, and he's writing, and he's hearing things like, um, Thus says the Lord to you, Judah, repent. Thus says the Lord to you, Judah, you're wicked. Thus says the Lord to you, Judah, judgment is coming. And then, verse 2 of chapter 45, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to you, O Baruch, that had to be quite an arresting thing. I think maybe even a surprising thing for the scribe to hear. Uh, and I'm glad this chapter is in the Bible, that God has a word for a man like Baruch. Remember most of Jeremiah's ministry, most of the book of Jeremiah that we have, prophetic message of judgment against Israel, against the nations. But God does not only have a word of rebuke for the idolatrous, unrepentant Israel, not just a word of rebuke for the proud, merciless nations, but a word of admonition also for Baruch, the faithful scribe of his prophet. And Jeremiah, the faithful prophet, delivers it to him. This had to be really difficult for Jeremiah, I would imagine. Uh, when God called Jeremiah to be a prophet, he said, I'm, I'm raising you up. I'm setting you over kings, over kingdoms and nations uh, to, to break down what I've built up, to pluck up what I have planted. Oh, and also, I'm calling you to be a prophet to admonish your dear friends. Calvin says this, we must notice that the holy man, Jeremiah, did not spare his own disciple, Baruch, whom yet he no doubt loved, for he had employed him, and Baruch had acted faithfully, not only as his scribe, but also as his fellow helper. As then Jeremiah had proved the fidelity, care, and diligence of Baruch in many things, he wished, no doubt, to treat him with kindness. But as God would have this fault in Baruch to be corrected, the prophet performed this duty. Now, uh, I think it can be really easy for us to sit together and talk about the evil and the sin of ISIS or uh, Planned Parenthood or a false teacher. And when I say that's easy, I'm not saying that's wrong and that we shouldn't do it. It's necessary. Uh, I'm just saying it can be easy to do. Much harder, and yet still necessary, is to sit with each other and speak against the sin that is in one another. But this is one of the ways that we're called to love one another, to say, brother, I love you, and so I have to tell you what God's word says about the sin I see in your life. And may we be found faithful in this uh, sacred, difficult duty, as Jeremiah was. So what was the content 
Though moving on, what was the content of the Lord's message for Baruch? Look at verse 3 with me, chapter 45. This is how the Lord begins to address him. You, Baruch, said, Woe is me, for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I am weary with my groaning, and I find no rest. So uh, the weeping prophet had a weeping scribe. And this is perhaps an ancillary point, but uh, perhaps it's the case that Baruch responds to his situation in this way, in part because of the example that he had in Jeremiah. This certainly calls to mind uh, some of the laments that Jeremiah himself lobbied against the Lord. I can't help but think of when Jesus said, a disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. For better or for worse. Uh, I think it's interesting how the Lord starts his word to Baruch by saying, You said. So he starts by saying, Let me tell you what you said. Let me tell you what you're thinking. God knows our hearts. Uh, And actually, the heart of man is a major theme in Jeremiah. One of the ways that that's developed is repeated notes about the Lord sees the heart, the Lord tests the heart, the Lord searches the heart, the Lord tries the heart. Baruch is busy doing the Lord's work. Baruch's life is full of religious activity. And the Lord takes issue with his attitude. 1 Corinthians 4 says, The Lord will disclose the purposes of the heart, and then each will receive his commendation from God. Not until then. Baruch is saying, my life is painful. My life is is full of sorrow. Things are hard, and God is not bringing relief. He's just, he's piling it on, rather. And things are so difficult, it makes me groan, and I've been doing it so long that I'm weary, and there's no end in sight. I'm sure he feels this way as he's thinking about the implications of the words of judgment that he's writing, and thinking about what it's going to mean uh, for him to carry out this mission he's been giving to share those words in the temple to people who have heard words like that from Jeremiah, who hate words like that, who persecute for words like that? How does the Lord respond to this distress? Look at verse 4. Thus shall you, as Jeremiah, shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, behold, what I have built, I am breaking down. And what I have planted, I am plucking up. That is, the whole land. How how is that supposed to help Baruch? Baruch says, woe is me. God says, I am destroying the whole land. Baruch needs reminding that God's purposes are bigger than you. God built his people in the land and now he's 
breaking that building down. God planted his people in the land, and now he's pulling that plant up. This is just what the Lord said he would do through Jeremiah when he called him to be a prophet in chapter 1. This is just what God said would happen. God is in control. Uh, One commentator says this, I I think correctly, Baruch may have been overwhelmed by the knowledge of the tragedy that was coming on Jerusalem. That would include his family and friends even. He needed to be reminded that God was in control of Judah's fate. So first, how God responds is he turns Baruch's attention to uh, his broader purposes, external to Baruch. Subsequently, as we're about to read, the Lord puts his finger on what really is causing Baruch's sorrow and restlessness, internal to Baruch. Look at verse 5. And do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. So, Baruch, you said, woe is me. And the Lord responds, do you seek great things for yourself? Uh, A very literal, clunky, but literal translation of this verse would be, and you, do you seek for you great things? The Lord reveals to Baruch that his sorrow and his weariness is actually the result of some self-focused ambition and desire for self-preservation, not ultimately the result of his difficult circumstances. So uh, we could say it this way. Um, His misery is occasioned by his difficult circumstances. But in this case, it is caused by selfish ambition and self-preservation. We don't know exactly uh, how this desire expressed itself in Baruch, what were the great things he was seeking, Uh, but it's clear, isn't it, that as Baruch considers his role in these circumstances, he responds in his heart by saying, this is not how I wanted my life to go. This is not how I wanted my life to go. I wanted something else, something different. When I signed up to be Jeremiah's scribe, I wanted something better. Do you know whose fault it is ultimately? It's God's. Perhaps Baruch wanted to be used by the Lord in a different capacity. Perhaps he wanted to uh, see greater results in return for his service. We can't be for sure. But uh, man, I've been there, haven't you? You think, uh, somehow, some way, I perceive that what God has me doing is less than what I wanted for myself. It's like God has directed my path to what seems to me like unfruitfulness or uh, insignificance even. And it makes you sorrowful and tired. Uh, if you find yourself miserable, and you can't seem to ever find rest from sorrow, check your heart for selfish ambition or for an idolatrous attachment to self-preservation. It's not a one-size-fits-all 
uh, fits all diagnosis. That's not the silver bullet, but it is a legitimate option for the source of your turmoil. Paul teaches us in Philippians that some will preach Christ out of selfish ambition. And interestingly, Paul rejoiced, if you remember, uh, that at least the gospel was going forth as they did, despite the less than ideal motives animating their ministry. And uh, I agree with Paul, as I should, right? If some serve the church and seek the building up of the body and the salvation of the lost, even for less than ideal motive, we rejoice. God can use that. But our text today shows us that you'll be miserable if you serve while seeking great things for yourself. And if you don't end up miserable, you'll end up something worse. Arrogant. And God opposes the proud. This goes for any sphere. It's not just ministry, uh, church service, your job, family, you name it. Um, and usually, isn't it the case that if you seek great things for yourself, you end up both miserable and arrogant, one or the other at various times, oscillating between the two as you're pushed to, to one pole or the other by the opinions and fickle commitments of men. But more often than not, people who seek great things for themselves end up like Baruch. Woe is me. Uh, now, quick time out. You may hear this and be tempted to, to uh, diss all forms of ambition. Don't do that. Don't do that. Uh, I'd like to be used in greater ways. I'd like to give greater efforts in evangelism. I'd like to see greater fruit from my evangelism. I'd like a greater prayer life. I'd like to be better at my job. I'd like to have greater knowledge of the Bible. I'd like to have greater knowledge of everything. I'd like to be greater at fixing things. I'd like to be better at just being people's friends. That's okay. Uh, more than that, this is good. We should pursue being greater in all of these areas and more. Uh, but here's the rub. Pursue them for the right reasons. Not for the promotion of self or the preservation of self. You seek these things, even great things, as part of your desire to please God and enjoy Him. Such that you're okay if God doesn't use you in accordance with those desires. So, uh, when you say, Lord, take my life and let it be consecrated all to Thee, be sure that you also say, take my intellect and use every power as Thou choose. I, I think sometimes um, it's almost as if we think, God, uh, I give you myself. I want to be used by you. You can have all of me. You can use me however you wish. But since I'm offering you so much, we think, you better make good use of it according to my understanding of good use. God, make us men who truly can say, use every power as thou choose, no matter how radical or how ordinary that seems. Um, the sin of selfish ambition clings so closely, doesn't it? How do we even begin to turn away from this? Look at verse 5. 
again with me. It says, do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. For, behold, I am bringing disaster upon all flesh, declares the Lord. So in many ways, we're right back where uh, the Lord started his response in verse 4. Do you see how the Lord sandwiches this rebuke, don't, don't seek great things, in between reminders of God's grander purposes? So in verse 4, I'm destroying the whole land. Therefore, verse 5, don't seek great things for yourself. Because, once again, I'm destroying all flesh. So uh, we root out selfish ambition in part by turning our attention to God's wider purposes in the world. And his ultimate goal is propelling those actions, which is his own glory and the final good of his people. When you think about what God is doing in the world, uh, the glorious things he is accomplishing in the, here and to the corners of the earth that will result in unending praise for him forever from every creature above the earth, in the earth, under the earth, you think about that, don't you feel your smallness? Are you tempted in light of these things to seek great things for yourself? Are you tempted in light of these grand, uh, God-glorifying forever, cosmic purposes to wallow in thoughts of woe is me? So here, uh, here's how this might play itself out, practically speaking. Um, this is a little silly, but uh, hopefully helpful. So let's say that um, you come to men's breakfast and you tell Rusty that you want to help him prepare. Okay. Um, Rusty gives you the job of, of cooking bacon. So on the one hand, if you're not thinking about God's work beyond uh, just you, you, and yourself, you can cook bacon for men's breakfast in light of the fact that just pretty narrow focus here. Someone has to do it, and that's what Rusty assigned you, and you could end up grumbling. That Rusty giving me the job of bacon, of course he told me to do it. He didn't ask John to do it. He likes talking to John. <laughs> he certainly do, didn't want to do it himself, get his arms popped by burning grease. I could flip those pancakes better than Mike. He probably doesn't think I could do a good job. Why am I doing this anyway? This isn't helping me grow spiritually. This isn't fulfilling in any way. Or, on the other hand, uh, if you turn your attention to God's wider purposes, you can cook bacon for men's breakfast in light of the fact how God is at work in the world, calling uh, people for his own possession to himself, through his Son, by the Spirit, and then he's remaking those people to be like his son, restoring in man the image of God in all its fullness. And at this particular time, in this particular place, cooking bacon is the part that I have to play in that great work of God. And here's the, the glory in that, is that God delights to take what seems insignificant and use it in ways that are eternally significant. And nothing could be more significant than that. But before we move on to the end of the verse, I think it's worth pointing out that there are actually some parallels 
between how God responds to Baruch in his misery and the way he responded to Job. Remember that Job experiences excruciating personal difficulty and hardship, and and the Lord, in response, does the Lord address Job's specific situation? Not first, does he? He turns Job's gaze to his own unsearchable greatness. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And wonderful things like, can you, can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are. And the Lord goes on and on like this. And the Lord's word changed Job's perspective. At the end of the book, Job says, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I've uttered things I did not understand, things too wonderful to me. So in many ways, what God tells Baruch is directly in line with how he handled Job. Realize your own lowliness and transience in light of the Lord's unfathomable greatness and his unobstructed sovereignty. But that's not all the Lord says. So so God's purposes are broader than our personal welfare, but that does not mean that they exclude our personal welfare. There is no purposeless collateral damage in God's execution of his broader purposes. Look at the end of verse 5 with me. He says, But I will give you your life as a prize of war, In all places to which you may go. You'll have your life as a prize of war. That is, um, when an army would go and and conquer another nation, the the spoil or the plunder, the booty that they would have, that's their prize of war. And, And the Lord says, your reward, you'll make it through alive. This is something that, uh, this exact promise is something that the Lord promises to others in the book of Jeremiah. Actually, three other times for those who trust his word, what Jeremiah the prophet is is saying, in the midst of this judgment, you'll have your life. Um, We we may wonder, I think it's right to ask these kind of questions, why why is chapter 45 so far after chapter 36 if they actually happened at the same time as part of the same historical incident. I think it's, it's possible that this, uh, this decision was made in part to show how the Lord was faithful to this promise to Baruch. Before we ever get to chapter 45, we read about all kinds of difficulties that the Lord preserved Baruch through. Uh, and, uh, by, by way of final application here, in the same way that Baruch that God promised to preserve Baruch through the judgment that came on Judah, God has promised to preserve us through the judgment coming on all the world. And I feel confident making that simple, direct application of Baruch's situation to us because Jeremiah himself connected these two judgments. The one that came on Judah in uh, you know, 2,500 years ago, and the one that is coming upon the whole world when Christ 
returns. You see, uh, at various points in this book, while talking about this judgment that's coming on Judah, Jeremiah at times employed language that seems to describe the final judgment coming on all the peoples of the earth. Language like, I see the heavens and the earth formless and without void, like a reversal of creation. Right? Even in this, in this passage, I am destroying all flesh. See, the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem thousands of years ago is like the coming cosmic worldwide judgment. It prefigures, we can say it typifies, it serves as a, as a type of something bigger that will come later. And the authors of the Bible do this all the time. Um, they, they, they speak of Israel in the land, both of how God blesses her and judges her as, as a kind of microcosm for how God will act at the end eschatologically in relation to all peoples in all places. So I think that because of that, we can apply Baruch's situation at one level at least quite directly to our own. God is bringing disaster on all flesh on account of their sin. Like Baruch, we call people to repent in submission to God's word. And God is at work right now to save a people for himself through that judgment. A people uh, who will come from every nation on the planet a people whom he will preserve. And God, by his grace, uses people like us to help accomplish this ingathering of his people and their sanctification. We are not promised that we will have the particular role we think we might like to have in being a part of that great saving work of God in the world. We are not promised that we will see the type of results that we might like to see as we play our part in that great saving work of God in the world. But we are promised that God will save us through the judgment that we deserve. We will have our life. Uh, when I consider uh, this chapter, the Lord's promise to Baruch, I can't help but think of the episode when Jesus sends out the 72. Uh, do you remember this? He said, go two by two into all the towns ahead of me. Uh, heal the sick, preach the gospel of the kingdom. And unlike Baruch, the 72 come back to Jesus and their expectations for ministry were exceeded. They are pumped. Uh, and they say to Jesus, Lord, uh, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Jesus says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Don't rejoice primarily in the authority I've given you to play a particular role in my work. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And so in closing, likewise, I say to you, rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Or as he told Baruch, the Lord gives you your life. Let that sustain you as you continue to serve him. That truly is a great thing. Actually, let, let me say one last thing, and that is uh, perhaps some of you are wondering, uh, how, how can that be true of me? I'm not sure that that is true of me, that my name is written in heaven, that I will be saved when God judges the world for sin. The Bible says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. 
Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will by no means cast out. You deserve judgment, but God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and he lived a perfect life on your behalf, and he died the sinner's death that you deserve and took on himself the eternal punishment that is due us. And then three days later, he rose from the dead, showing that he had overcome sin and all its effects in full. And if you will just repent, just repent, just confess that you have done evil, that you have wronged God and others, and then just decommit from your future plans to pursue sin. If you will just trust Jesus, just embrace what he's done for you, entrust yourself to him, just believe that he's going to make good on the promises that he's made. If you will repent and trust Jesus because of what Jesus has done, the penalty for sin that you deserve, that will be meted out in the coming judgment, will have already been credited to Christ, done, finished, over in the righteous life that Jesus lived as a man, just like you, will be credited to you as you're united to Jesus by faith in him. You can have your life because of Jesus. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this word. And I pray that you would, um, if there be any in here that are not currently on a path to be preserved through the coming judgment, that you would save them. You would write their name in heaven. And I pray those of us who are um, trusting in Jesus by your grace and seeking to serve the church, I pray you would help us not to seek great things for ourselves. I pray you would remind us um, of your greatness. And I pray that you would restore the joy of our salvation to us. And again, thank you for your word in this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.